Hey everybody, Doug here. Before we get started with the show, I want to tell you about a new book that Peter and I have published called From the Earth to the Moon, the miniseries Companion. If you love space and space exploration and movies and television shows about space and space exploration, this is for you. If you think you've read it all and know everything there is to know about the moon flights, we want you to think again. Uh, in 1998, the landmark TV series, From the Earth to the Moon, aired on HBO in 12 episodes, told the daring story of NASA's Project Apollo to put humans on the moon. Our book provides a comprehensive and detailed analysis of each episode of the miniseries and covers Apollo from start to finish and then some. It's more than a simple episode guide. Our companion reevaluates the entire Apollo program, both within and outside the context of the HBO series. We review the choices that the filmmakers made regarding the actors, special effects, and historical accuracy in every episode. We show what they got right, what they got wrong, and what they didn't tell you about each of the historic moon flights. Um, we cover all manned Apollo missions, the creation of the lunar module, the Apollo 1 fire and its aftermath, the personal and professional highs and lows of the astronauts, and lots of key NASA personnel. As an added bonus, the book includes an in-depth interview that I did with Andrew Chaikin, author of A Man on the Moon, the book that was the basis for the entire miniseries. It also includes 35 great images, many of which I can guarantee you've never seen before. Um, you can buy the book on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or any of the book reader platforms. Uh, again, uh, we hope you check it out, and uh, on to the show. Thanks. All right, uh, lift off and the clock is started. Yes, sir, reading you loud and clear. You got speed, John Glenn. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Right Stuff Companion. Uh, I remain uh, Doug, and my co-host, as always, is Peter. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Uh, so we are now into episode three. Uh, so we're kind of getting into the meat of the series now. Yeah. I mean, now that we're a couple episodes in, it makes me wonder more about why they made the first episode as dryly as they did. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's funny. You nailed it. Dry is the word that came to me, too. Because it's not. I mean, you know, the next couple, two and three, were not dry. They are pretty well done. And three is better than two, I thought. Like, they're kind of, you know, they've got their, their legs underneath them now. Yeah, I mean it was it was solid and they're they're looking into and you know the thing about this episode that's interesting is that they it's kind of the first time they've more explored the right stuff so to speak you know as we've spoken about quote unquote the right stuff as in what did what did uh, Tom Wolf call it flying fucking um <laughs> he had that like thing he used over and over in the book you know it was like a like a string of words, you know, let's like describe most of what their activities in life were. <laughs> right, right. Drinking. <laughs> yeah, it was like all Fs or something, wasn't it? Yeah, I have to look it up. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that they're definitely getting a little bit more down to brass tacks. Uh, just, just to back up, we should just sort of, uh, for completeness sake, the episode is called Single Combat Warrior, which is Tom Wolfe's phrase. Uh, it's written by Louise, uh, sorry, it's directed by Louise Endy Friedberg and written by Howard Corder. And this was originally aired on October 16th of 2020. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, it's actually a little... Dare I say it, 
it's a little fun this episode, you know, like just a little. Like they're like they're just with one toe, they're dipping their their foot into actually having a little bit of fun with this episode. Even though it's a pretty serious episode, like it's a little more enjoyable to watch than some of the others. Right. Um so we start off in Mercury Control, uh, which is a pretty good reconstruction of the Mercury Control set. Uh, we've seen a Mercury Control set in From the Earth to the Moon that looked very similar, but was lit very differently. And From the Earth to the Moon, the Mercury Control set, and also in the Right Stuff film, it's it's lit very darkly, whereas here it's lit in a much more flat, bright, fluorescent lighting kind of way, which is actually, if you look at it in photos, how it really looked. Yes. Um, in the movies and, and on TV, everything's always dark. Right. Everywhere. Well, it looks better, you know. Yeah. Um, it looks better if you're illuminated by the screen on the monitor in front of you. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and uh, there's a, a technical issue with the launch and the RSO, the so called range safety officer, whose job is literally to blow up the rocket. Um, uh, if there's trouble and there's danger that the rocket could come down on a populated area, debates uh, destroying the rocket and killing its astronaut uh occupant uh and he gets ripped a new one by uh chris craft uh for for hesitating and they have a big big public fight about it where the where the controller says to him don't second guess me yeah um and you know it's a tense scene because you kind of get to see uh, a very unvarnished portrayal of Chris Kraft, right? It's unclear if Kraft is right or wrong in the way that he handles the situation. Well, Kraft is clearly worked up uh, in this episode, and basically most of the episode is him kind of stomping around issuing orders and being extremely stressed out. And part of that, you know, you kind of get it. You get the fact that he's under a lot of pressure because they're going to they're basically gearing up to launch an astronaut and they're testing and the eyes of the country are on them and he feels the pressure. Yeah, no doubt. He feels the pressure. Um, and you know, you could tell everybody's tense. I mean, he gets, you know, Kraft gets pissed that people aren't tense enough, but he, you know, he kind of goes after the controller for being a little indecisive. Like he just wants, he wants, you know, he says his words are, you want to go, no, go like, just tell me yes or no. And then that will just act on it. Yeah. It's interesting. And then of course we find out that the whole thing is a simulation. Right. Um, we then, uh, shift gear. So at least now they've let us know, right. For example, that, uh, MA one is coming up, right. The, the first flight of a mercury capsule on an Atlas, booster so-called ma1 as opposed to mr which would be mercury redstone right and um, they frame the episode with the countdown which is like two days away to basically hour by whatever the hours left to the countdown till the test launch because the families right, are coming ma1 right ma1 the press is coming their the, wives are coming right right um we then shift gears right to the so-called mastiff right the mastiff is the multi-axis space test inertial facility uh, which was also more commonly known as the gimbal rig which was basically a three-axis trainer uh, where the astronauts can practice orienting in all three uh, dimensions 
you know, as they would be able to do during a, an actual space flight. While they're vomiting uncontrollably and having <laughs> horrible vertigo. Shitting their pants. <laughs> yeah. I mean, talk about uncomfortable. You know, what's funny is they show this thing and they're spinning and it looks god awful. I mean, I had vertigo just watching it, you know, on TV. <laughs> and, and, they, and it's funny because they're like, yeah, this is nothing. Well, that's well, their attitude. Astronauts. Right, that's right. Their attitude. They're fighter jocks. However, you know, when Gordo Cooper says that, he kind of means it in the sense that it's not really dangerous. You know. Well, they can't get hurt. It's way it's way safer than flying, you know, an F-104. That's right. for sure. Right. So he kind of he kind of says that it's not it's not really that big a deal, except for Shepard. It is a big deal to Shepard. Right, and we, we and we begin with Shepard. We we very quickly before we get back to the Mastiff, we see Shepard talking to Wainwright from Life, and he is unbelievably cocky and overconfident. Like he's not just confident; he's overconfident. Right. You know, he's basically you know swinging his dick all around. Right. He's during that, the interview with Wainwright. You know, whatever thirty percent or twenty three percent of of. Uh, test pilots die and you're looking at these are the guys who survived who are here so they're the best not of course you know ignoring luck and bad luck as a factor <laughs> right. entirely which they in their hearts know there's a huge factor they tell themselves it's not and that's part of the right stuff right so that's why this address this episode kind of addresses what quote unquote the right stuff is part of the right stuff is being able to delude yourself constantly that that there's no randomness in the selection in in death um but when flying or testing right and these guys he demonstrates that ability um when mm -hmm. it, in that life interview he demonstrates that that he can tamp down fear of the randomness of disappearing in a in a few seconds when you you know you angle in and poof gone and um you know that then that is that's what one of the things that Tom Wolf talks about is one of their ways they survive. Right, right. These are the ones who have survived. And again, they don't all survive, right? They don't all survive down the road, as will become apparent, you know, as we tell this story. Um, we then see Shepard in the Mastiff trainer, and he has a really bad time. He right? sucks. He, he, he can't control it. He can't write he himself. Yeah, he's hearing, he's hearing a ringing in his left ear. Well, he he doesn't abort on his own. They they're yelling at him right. to abort. Like they can see he is in trouble. And this is our our introduction to Shepard's Meniere's disease, right? Right. So uh, there's been much written uh, over the years and portrayals in media about the fact that Al Shepard did develop Meniere's disease. So. This is a. We should is just explain be, what that is. It's basically. Yeah. Do you want to explain that? And I can talk a little bit about Shepard. I think I remember, but basically, <laughs> it's it's a you know so in the in the inner ear right there's the semicircular canals that basically are what air cells what enable you to have orientation, space, and balance. And when there's various ways they get there's three of them right. They're oriented in in the three axes axes of space right, and they detect basically sloshing um and and that's the way that you can kind of tell what orientation you're in right and if um you know uh, one of the ways that you can have um 
you can have various abnormalities, right? But one of them is common is Meniere's disease where you basically get vertigo or, or dizziness and you get ringing in an ear uh, when there's a disorder of the um, semicircular canals. Yeah, I think that's pretty well said. That's pretty good. Um, I don't know if they know what it's from. I don't. I, I don't think that there's a, a clear cause. Although um, there's been a lot written about Meniere's disease in pilots because pilots may be predisposed to it from all the maneuvers that they do. Hmm. Um, and uh, so anyway, but in, you know now we have much better treatments for Meniere's disease. But in 1959, not only did we ha not have much to do for it, but you know for a pilot, it was a career ender. Right. If you had many air disease and they thought you were going to get vertigo, right, and lose your, you know, fall over or, or get turned around, right, they couldn't have you fly. Right. Um, so, you know, it's not just that he's nauseous and he hears ringing in his ears. He knows that his entire existence, right, in this program as a pilot, as a military aviator, and right, an astronaut, too. In, right, in jeopardy now. Yeah. So he has, he's powerfully motivated. Not to tell anybody. And throughout the episode, um, he's always sort of testing himself. You can see him like snapping, you know, his fingers next to his ear to try to test because his hearing is out. He hears ringing and right. hearing loss and he's, he has vertigo and it's, and he knows, you know, that it's a big problem. They make it, again, I think there's a fair bit of fictional fictionalization in this episode. And for example, they make it look like this is his initial experience with his Meniere's disease, and like, like it happens to him in the Mastiff Trainer. Although I am, I am pretty sure, and I have read in a variety of contexts that his first actual uh, attack happened on a golf course. He was out with his dad, and he had a difficult time standing up, and he was nauseous on the golf course. And he was with his father and somebody else, and he basically said to them, you can't tell anyone. So I, I think that he probably knew uh, very, very early in the game with NASA that he had this and he was hiding it all along. They make it sound like this is his discovery, but I don't actually think that that's true. Right. So, and again, but you could understand why, why, why he hit it, right? He only stands to lose if he if he is discovered you know you you could imagine he'd rather die in a crash and not have the secret come out yeah he you loses know? everything right and then sort of after being so cocksure and arrogant with the life reporter wainwright right his time is written on the board he's dead last they don't even write a time actually next to him because mm -hmm. they have this they have this competition among the mercury seven is so you can stabilize and reorient the the spacecraft trainer fastest and cooper is first right um but and shepherd like he's he's listed on the board but he doesn't even get a time like he's he's so far down the bottom it doesn't even matter and he's laying um, there like with a with a vestibular attack you know like he's laying there just miserable he looks green yeah. and sweaty he's basically laying on <laughs> yeah. a cot and it's the first time we see al shepherd kind of humbled a little bit right you know, and you know he's not going to take that well. No, no. Well, again, like uh, as as they say in psychiatry, it's ego dystonic, right? It's it's 180 degrees from how he views himself, right? It does it does not go with his self image in the slightest, right? Um, and then we see in in stark contrast, we see Glenn, 
with a life reporter, right? And he he is just the opposite of Al Shepard in every way. He talks about service and country and duty and honor. Uh, and, you know, he breaks out his trumpet <laughs> for, for Wainwright. And, you know, and Wainwright is savvy enough to kind of say to him, like, you practiced this before you spoke to me. Like, come on, you don't really talk like this. Um, and it's a good little bit where Glenn, you know, it shows you how Glenn is trying so hard, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it, it maybe works in print. It doesn't work so well in real life. Yeah. On the other hand, though, he basically dictates the article to the guy. The guy just has to take notes. Like, Glenn is just <laughs> speaking the article. You know, like, the, I mean, if, if you're that journalist, Glenn is like a dream come true. I mean, there's no work. He talks to Gus Grissom, and Grissom grunts at him a couple times mm, and yeah. tells him a dirty joke. And then he's got to take, he's got to come out of that. And it's probably not even a good joke. And he's got to be more fun to hang out with Grissom, though. I don't know. Grissom's a little rough. <laughs> So yeah, that's the by thing. all accounts. That's the thing also about these guys in general. Like, they're really, like, they really show it in this episode. Like, they are not, they're kind of on the juvenile side. Like, I don't mean to belittle them, but they really, they just want to, like, splash in the pool with chicks. And and, and compete and with compete each other. And, and that's, win. That's it. Well, you know what I always think about when I think about Grissom? There's a story in The Right Stuff about Grissom that I've seen told in other media. So it's either being retold from The Right Stuff or it has more of a basis in fact. But I'm pretty sure it's Grissom. But when Grissom uh, arrived in Meg Alley, you know, uh, during Korea, um, at, the, at the morning briefing for the pilots before they, you know, flew up to the Yalo River and, you know, met the MiG-15s, Grissom noticed that some of the pilots were sitting during the briefing and some of the pilots were standing. And he said, like, what does that mean? And they they said, you know, you can't sit down unless you shot down a MiG. Hmm. And he made damn sure, like, at the next briefing, he was sitting. Yeah. You know, like, that's how these... I'll look up the details and make sure I'm telling that story right. But, you know, like, that's the lens through which these guys viewed the world. You know, competition, besting somebody, you know, at all costs. Right. And it's worked for them up to this point. And and the other thing too, again, they're in the military, and you know I've I haven't been in the military, but I've heard rumors that sometimes when soldiers are away from their wives, there's infidelity. So you know, like this is something that these guys have been inculcated into. Well, it's not just the military. I mean, these guys are. It's part of their ethos, you know. Yeah, a friend of mine who was uh, who was in the navy, uh, he had a lot of liaisons, shall we say, and I. <laughs> And I kind of once raised an eyebrow at him about it. He said, that's half the reason to join the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) He was a pretty funny guy. All right. Um, uh, We also see another interesting moment uh, for Al Shepard. Right after uh, Glenn plays his trumpet, we see Al on a phone call with Louise, his wife, and he flat out tells her it's not going well. Like, Mm -hmm. You could see the glue in the marriage. Like, you know, Louise Shepard always knew about Al's infidelities. Um, like she knew before and especially after the right stuff where they were, you know, laid bare in writing. And she never, ever spoke about them with Al. Um, mm-hmm. But you could see the glue in their marriage. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like Al's not going to tell a girl he met at the bar at the Starlight Motel but he's going to tell Louise that he's having troubles and he's not doing great. But even he doesn't even tell her the full truth. 
No, she's the only one he talks to, except for maybe D a little bit, the nurse, right? Which yeah, is the although that comes scene, yeah, yeah a little bit later. Um, it's an interesting scene, and it makes the Louise Shepard character kind of more interesting and three dimensional. I thought. Yeah. <clears throat> um, we then cut back to uh, Cooper and Glenn, who are uh, out for a jog, and as they sort of come back to the motel where they're all living. Uh, it's actually a good scene for both of them. You know, Cooper invites Glenn to essentially hang out with the guys and don't be such an isolationist. Um, right. And Glenn is reluctant. Yeah, this this episode also, it shows another dimension of Glenn. Um, you know, Glenn, he's he's a bit on the stiff side, right? He's a, he's a little fake and he's sort of portrayed as a little bit sort of self-motivated, right? He doesn't, it's not just that, ambitious he's ambitious but really selfish a little bit like his ambition really kind of trumps he he clo he cloaks it in the guise of patriotism but it's really in a way it's there's a certain naked ambition that he has that really has nothing to do with patriotism well and it turns people off yeah yeah you know like if you're if, if you get it if you get like exposed to that Glenn glare for two minutes, it's inspiring. If you get exposed to it all day, it's not. Well, because it comes through that he's that it's he's self motivated, right? And he's trying to sort of best the other astronauts by being a suck up and a kiss ass, right? Right. He's not playing by the same rules they are. No, he's not. And, and, and the other astronauts kind of resent him for it, right? They can see what he's doing, and they're just kind of like, they kind of shrug and roll their eyes and snicker at him behind his back. I'm you not know, sure how much of them uh, snickering is jealousy because he's so smooth, and how much is that they detect that he's full of crap. You know, or, or both. both. I a think little it, bit is, of both. it is both. You know, in the way that, for example, Cooper and Grissom are just openly competitive with each other. You know, like here, for example, Cooper and Grissom are portrayed as more adversaries, like they don't get along so well. Whereas in the Right Stuff film, they're portrayed more as buddies meeting out at Edwards Air Force Base, although that actually was essentially fiction in the Right Stuff film. But here they're portrayed really as antagonists, and it really comes to a head later in this episode. Yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, Annie is, uh, she tells, Annie Glenn tells John in a phone call that she's nervous about her upcoming photo shoot. And you could see, you know, she's she's uncomfortable in front of the press because of her stutter. Although I guess for the for the photo shoot, or at least that, she, that won't come out. Um, and the, the men in a, in a foreshadowing scene, there's actually a nice scene where they, they trial their personalized seats, right? They have these seats for them molded so that they'll fit perfectly in their Mercury spacecraft. Uh, they'll use these molds to make fiberglass seats that they'll actually sit in. But there's a bit where they say, you know, well, you know, we, when do we see the spacecraft or, you know, what, what are the controls going to look like? And the, the engineers are kind of like, <laughs> you know, like they kind of like, yeah, well, we'll have something for you soon. You know, like yeah, we'll what they right know is <laughs> right. So what they know is the astronauts going to have pretty limited control. And these guys aren't going to like that. Right? They are can. much Right, yeah, they're much more a passenger than a pilot, or at least much more a passenger than they'd like to be. And, and it's a good little bit because it sort of foreshadows some troubles to come. Um, and then they're, you know, as they're sort of contemplating what it means to lay on your back 
right with your legs up in front of you you know glenn walks out and he he practices in his car like he lays down on the passenger seat of his car and he's he's being all serious and he's he's doing what they call uh, chair flying so pilots do what, are taught to do what's called chair flying like you just sit in a chair and you close your eyes and you practice the procedures and you say what you're going to say when you're in a real plane so he's chair flying the mercury capsule in his car and he's all serious you know like he's he's really trying and and, and wally shiraz takes a stuffed alligator in his face right <laughs> right and they all make fun of him right and then cooper again says like why don't you come out with us you know it's you're gonna come out with us and and cooper is clearly trying to be good quote unquote he's trying to help john he's trying to help john and he's trying to keep him he's trying not to participate with the other guys to the extent of the whoring that they're doing like he's he's kind of cooper's kind of in the middle you know you got glenn over glenn's sitting there with his bible on one end right right and shepherd's on the other with two girls in the corvette right and the other guys are pretty His close to Shepard. And then you got Cooper. <laughs> Cooper's in the middle. Well, Cooper's stuck because he wants to be with the other guys, but he knows his marriage is hanging by a thread. And he also, I think, kind of sees, at least the way they portrayed in this series, he sees Glenn's, the sort of advantages that being like Glenn can give you in a way. Mm. Like, like, I think he in the beginning maybe was afraid he wasn't going to do very well you know it's it, it's when when they're running and glenn says to him like you know where he's, he's out of i mean he's doing terribly when they're running and basically you know when glenn says to him like i can smell the rum coming off of you and i think cooper here is is making some effort to change that he's trying to tread middle ground basically yeah yeah and it's a tough balance for him you know, right. And you could you could tell like he wants to screw around as we see later in this episode, but he also like he's in love with his wife, Trudy, you know, like he likes being with his kids like he's stuck like he wants to have everything and you can't. He's so far in many ways, like the most sympathetic character but to, to this point in the series, because he has sort of real struggles, right, that you can sympathize or empathize with. And he doesn't and he, he kind of is trying to chart a course and he's his motivations are comprehensible really in a way that the other guys even glenn even there is not totally comprehensible but you really can kind of see from cooper's viewpoint pretty easily mm -hmm. oh yeah for sure again it's in stark contrast to um um the portrayal uh of uh you know dennis quaid's Gordon Cooper and the right stuff, who's just, you know, crazy from start to yeah. finish. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, we then see Al's, Al Shepard flop in the Mastiff trainer again, right? Mm -hmm. he, he cannot do it. Like, you know, like he, you can see he's starting to wonder if this is going to be his undoing. Um, we see Craft um, and uh, Gilruth, they're building up to Mercury Atlas One, and they're wondering, like, maybe this is the wrong choice. Like, should they, you know, should they should they be practicing or launching a mercury redstone right because that's what's actually going to be first right. uh, in the program and there's a really good scene where they where you know um, where craft realizes that the men aren't unified and there's friction and tension and he he sort of like stumbles to this idea of that hey let's all play volleyball together and i'll get in the, the volleyball game with the guys with the controllers yeah right the flight controllers by the way who are all wearing shirts and ties in the unbelievable heat of florida which in I the thought sand. was amazing 
Yeah. <laughs> they're right. They're wearing and black shoes. slacks, shoes, <laughs> skinny ties, and short sleeve dress shirts. Yes. With and a tie playing clip. volleyball. And and he he kind of tries too hard to kind of, you know, be one of the guys and yeah. get in the game with He's them. awful. Yeah, but he, you know, he gets his comeuppance because the controller, who is the range safety officer, who he completely berated in front of everybody, uh, smashes him in the face with the volleyball and gets a laceration on his nose. Like he gets a sense that his glasses come down and hit him in the nose, and he's cut up and bleeding. Yeah, he spiked the ball over the net right yeah, into the Yeah, that's the term I was looking right for. Right his face. Spiked it. Yeah, it's a good scene because... You know, like you're kind of left wondering, like, did that controller do that by accident or did he do it on purpose? Like this was his chance, you know, to to give a little retribution to yeah. Kraft. And Kraft kind of deserved it. He was being a total douche. <laughs> he did. No, it's true. And then the other controllers are like, hey, man, what are you doing? It's just a game. But you could tell, like, there's a little exchange where Kraft and that controller, whose name I can't remember, they look at each other and there's a little moment of truth between them. Right. You know, like 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 they've both shown the other little naked aggression there. It's just a game in the way the simulation is just a game for the rocket right. launch. So it's not really yeah, a game. That's a good way to put it. That's a really, yeah. really good that observation. Phrase, that phrase really echoes what, what had just happened. Uh, right. To the point that in the beginning scene, one of the controllers says, it's just a sim, which comes back to haunt him later on. Right. So this is reflecting <laughs> that. This is not a sim. Craft is, a, is, is, you know, I have to say, like, out of the multiple storylines in this episode, the Craft one I thought was the weak one because I think Craft although they do convey that he's under a tremendous amount of pressure, you don't really understand kind of why he's such a dick. I mean, you don't, I don't understand all of his actions. I, I feel like it's the one sort mm. of storyline that's a little bit weak in this episode out of the intertwined storylines because the rest of them are really good. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good observation. Hmm. Um, we... Uh, we see the life article come out uh, that that uh, Shepard and uh, Glenn were were talking to the reporter at the beginning of the article. Sorry, the beginning of the episode, and uh, this woman, I think Eunice is her name, notices that Glenn is the only one of the astronauts who mentions God in the article, and and she invites him to join her at church. And you actually think it's a church, but we find out later it's it's not quite. Um, it's great. If Glenn you're goes to. Yeah, well, we find out in a little bit that it's actually uh, in a bowling alley. Uh, Glenn then goes, after, right after he's invited to church, and you can see Glenn's not sure he wants to go. He's just kind of being polite to, to poor Eunice. He then goes to Kraft and kind of sucks up and basically offers to escort the congressional delegation that's coming down for the MA-1 launch. Kraft shoots him down like in flames yeah, in two seconds. That's the exact, it's the exact words I wrote down. Before he notes. even gets it out. Yeah, and he calls him out. He says, you're not a team player. Like, he just, yep. you know, like, he says the unspoken part out loud. And he's right. I mean, he's, yeah. They're trying and to he's, make he's him realize. He's seen Glenn for who he really is. Right, right. And and that's Glenn's kind of dilemma. And so Glenn starts to kind of maybe very slightly lose his footing. You know, he's wondering how to sort of be at that point. But it's good, too, because it shows that, you know, Shepard is worried about his position. You know, Glenn is worried about his position. Cooper realizes, you know, like, if the truth about his marriage comes out, he's going to stumble. You know, like, they're all hanging by their their own threads, but everybody's thread is different. Yeah. 
Um, and they're all threatened uh, with, you know, instant death. <laughs> right, right, right. That's Remember, the it was great to get the opportunity to die on top of a right, top and then, of a rock. I mean, and with this, which is an unknown but high risk, right? It's not like everybody yeah, thinks as we, it's as safe. We see. Yeah. Um, and then there's a nice scene where the astronauts all go to dinner with a bunch of girls, and uh, Wainwright, the the life reporter, is there with his life photographer, and Wainwright is upset about this. He basically says, like, we're just we're writing a bunch of you know pablum and baloney yeah, the hypocrisy like, look at these guys and because they're really being like not they're prurient juvenile whatever yeah kind they're of, like groping the girls and drinking and they're just they're well they're i mean like they're like the worst caricature of a frat boy that's what they're <laughs> of like themselves Right, they're just the yeah. worst caricature. It's of the a, worst version of themselves. But the photographer kind of puts it back on Wainwright. He is, who cares? He's like, well, you know, this is a good story. America loves it. We're selling magazines. Like, shut up. Like, that's kind of the photographer's attitude. Yeah. Um, and then you know we cut to Glenn, who is alone in his room. Yeah. And you know you could tell like he's restless and he's antsy and he knows everybody has gone out and he's you know, sitting in his room. You know, there's no, nothing to do but sit on the edge of his bed and stare at the TV, basically. Right. So he uh, he takes Eunice up on her invitation and he heads to church. And then, you know, in the way that he's sort of facing his demons, we Shepherd is also. And Shepherd uh, goes to the Mastiff trainer alone at night, throws the, the circuit breaker on the wall and turns the thing on. And uh, in a completely dangerous move, he gets in the trainer by himself with no supervision. To practice. Um, and uh, while all this is happening, like there's sort of multiple plots start spinning up simultaneously. So, so Glenn's going to church, Shepard's in the Mastiff trainer, and uh, Gordo gets hit on by a beautiful young woman named Patricia who, who flat out undresses in front of him at the pool. Right. And invites him into the pool and he sort of he he you know, he's not sure what to do, but it's very, very tempted and he undresses not to the point of being naked, but he's in his he's in his skivvies, as they say, and he gets into the pool with her, and you could see like he's about to go over and you know, give in to this girl. Well, much like um Cooper kind of trying to tread this middle ground, Disney is producing this series and they're trying to tread the middle ground um yeah you know by sh of showing sex by keeping it in you know uh, basically showing they want to keep it titillating enough that people will you know are watching making out and whatever but they don't go sort of they, they right. hold it to underwear that's what right. I'm, not even, or like when when Patricia undresses you only see it from the, the waist up and from the back yeah there's they're very kind of they're very cautious. Yeah, yeah. It's a little too cautious, I thought. Uh, not that I'm looking, you know, look, if you want to watch porn, <laughs> it's everywhere, right? But it, to, to my point, it that, was... That's on Disney Plus Plus. <laughs> <laughs> they should call it Disney Minus Minus. But um, it, uh, but they're, they're clearly making an effort to avoid even the hint of side boob. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Glenn gets to the quote-unquote church, which actually turns out to be uh, the sort of raised platform area in a bowling alley. Um, and you could see, like, 
he's kind of like, what did I just show up for? You know, like he's kind of like he's he's sort of awkward and yeah, there's like know, it's a bunch of guys ten. reading loudly from the Bible while ten feet away, you know, guys are rolling spares. It sounds great because you can basically like bowl a couple frames, get you know drinks, <laughs> get shit faced at the bowling alley, and get your and worship religion. on. Yeah. <laughs> um. And then uh, I'm just sort of rapidly cutting back and forth as the show does. Um, uh, the rest of the astronauts who are not at church uh, or in the Mastiff Trainer interrupt Gordo in the pool, right? They all come splashing and diving in. And Frat boys. Gordo's moment with Patricia is ruined. Yeah. Uh, and then we cut very quickly to... So this is a this is better pace. You know, like they're interweaving all these plot lines. And a lot happens. Yeah, and Shepard is on the floor. And you don't know, like, was he thrown from the Mastiff Trainer? Probably not. But maybe because he's got an injury. He's got a laceration on the side of his head. Second laceration of the episode. Um, or did he sort of fall just trying to climb out of the thing? Yeah. Uh, and Dio O'Hara, who's working late, finds him. Um, uh, and then it's sort of, you know, he says to her, what do you think? And she says, you know, you get in trouble first and you're the slowest to recover like she can see that he's really having problems in the trainer sure um and we then cut back to grissom and cooper who basically get into a brawl and uh it's revealed that when they flew together um they almost got killed once because cooper didn't pre-flight their plane um, and the, the error was fully Cooper's and Cooper had lied about it. And they have a big, big fight about it uh, to the point that they end up sort of like fighting on the deck of the pool and then in the pool. And it ends with Grissom telling Patricia that she's wasting his time with Cooper. He won't do anything with her. Right. He's a window shopper. Yeah. Yeah. That's the expression. Which is, it's a good bit, too, because it's really kind of the first time we've given Gus more than two lines to say in this whole series. Like, you know, you kind of see things from Gus's point of view. Like, you know, maybe Gus's gruffness is built out of, you know, confidence and experience, you know, like, and he's he's slow to forget that Cooper made a, a, a big mistake that almost killed him. Yeah, and on the other hand, the window shopper comment, I mean, is you know, how dare he not want to carouse and right, want to like make through. his wife happy. Right. And not, well, and it's also like, you know, like it's kind of like you're with us, you're, or you're against us. Almost. Yeah. Um, by the way, the real master trainer was in Cleveland, Ohio, by the way, I made a little mental note to tell you that. Uh, so we cut back to Shepard with O'Hara um, in Florida, not Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and, and he kind of almost tells her the whole truth without actually telling her the whole truth. Like you could tell she knows something's wrong and he gets about as he walks right up to the line, but he doesn't quite tell her that what's really going on. And then she basically practices with him in the Mastiff trainer and she gives him some sort of solo time where he can work it out in his own way and he's able to learn how to do it right yeah he right he he's able to practice but more importantly 
you know, he's able to A, get his confidence back, and he realizes that, you know, he's much better to have D. O'Hara in his pocket as an ally than in his bed as a conquest. You know, true, like he kind of sees her in a in a more complex way. Yeah, that's and she's well not put. just some lady to hit on and bang. Right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. He and she's almost taken into his confidence and right, he sees her. Exactly. That's that's well said. Yeah. So then uh, the astronauts are shown the capsule, the Mercury capsule, for the very first time. Did you know, by the way, that the Mercury capsule was not entirely, of course, but largely designed by one person? That's pretty cool. That's amazing. Max Faget, uh, almost like like 90% by some accounts, 90% of the Mercury capsule is designed by Max Faget. Anyway, so they see the capsule, and the first thing that they notice is that there's no window. Right. They're like, oh, where, where's the window? How are we supposed to fly if we can't see? And they're kind of told that there's portholes. Now, there will be a window on later capsules, right? I think Liberty Bell uh, 7 uh, has a window on it. Um, but, uh, but you know, like this is this is the fruition of that engineer's comment early on, right? That there's, it's just, you know, they're, their realization of what's going to be expected of them in terms of flying may be a little bit different uh, than what NASA and its engineers have in mind. Right, and they tell them it's controlled from the ground. Yeah, yeah, which none of them like at all. Um, in the Right Stuff movie, this scene is done with a lot more confrontation and hostility. And it, you know, they they show them, you know, getting in the engineer's face. You know, in the show, uh, it's unclear what the ethnicity of the engineers are in the movie. They're shown to be German, although in real life they were mostly American, uh, but they get in the German engineers faces in the movie and they sort of demand a window and all hatch with explosive bolts and all sorts of, all sorts of concessions. Whereas here it's a little more understated, but they just, they do acknowledge that there's no window and the astronauts are not happy about it. Um, so as we build up to the big finale, the wives appear. Finally, the wives appear in Florida. Everybody has to sort of put on a big show, right? The, the cookies, not entirely, but largely disappear. And when the wives have their photo shoot, Renee Carpenter, who is the uh, acknowledged stunner of the group, shows up in a very, very appealing outfit uh, and in, in stark contrast to sort of the frumpy outfits that the other wives are wearing. Right. And, and she sort of upstages all the other wives at the photo shoot. Well, they were, I think they were assigned outfits too. That's kind of what Annie says. Yeah, she sort of implies it a little bit. But I think that they, because they, they show, they say earlier that uh, Renee Carpenter was supposed to wear yellow and she does, she shows up in like a bright floral print that sort of, and she has bare arms. Yeah. And it shows off her figure. Like, I think the implication is like, she just sort of threw the NASA plan over the, you know, over the rail and just dressed in a way that she knew she would look good. Um, right. We meet, by the way, Henry Lanwith, who's the bartender. Uh, we see at a sort of uh, um, at a sort of a pre-launch celebration. He was a hoteler uh, who kind of became close to the astronauts. He's just sort of thrown in there as a sort of like a, an Easter egg, I guess you would say. And then we get to the finale of the episode, which is the launch of Mercury Atlas One, uh, which is heralded by Kraft firing one of his flight controllers. Right. Um, Basically saying, like, you, you know, you, you 
downplayed the importance of a sim and I'm going to fire you in front of everyone, mostly so I can exert my authority and everybody will be in fear of me is really what he's doing. Right. And he on the spot promotes Glenn Lunny to take that man's position. Now, in real life, Glenn Lunny was almost never in Mercury control. He was usually way downrange. And Lunny himself said that he spent very little time in Mercury control at this point in his career. But so I think this scene is largely fiction. So if you're feeling bad for that flight controller, to the best of what I was able to discern from looking stuff up, that scene is fiction. By the way, I'm, um, I'm putting the uh, on the on the show notes. On this episode, I'll put the actual photo of the wives with the capsule, the real one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Louise Shepard is sitting with Al in a grandstand, and she sees a woman conspicuously staring at Al. This is a woman that we saw earlier in the episode in bed with him. And it's just another way to convey, like, Louise Shepard knows. Right. Like, she and she's you know she's not like some wives who would make a scene or confront al or confront the other woman she just she swallows it like she she knows what's going on and that's that's just how it is right um and then uh the rocket catastrophically fails right the rocket takes off and there's about 58 seconds of good news and then the rocket explodes on top of everybody's heads and they're all sort of standing there or sitting there slack-jawed, you know, realizing that they've signed up to ride this thing. Mm -hmm. And it's just blown up uh, right in front of everybody. Um, and then the episode ends with Shepard's ear ringing, right? So yeah. he's, ha you know, everybody's at a low point here, right? Shepard's. He, you know, his ear symptoms, you know, like we thought maybe he's got it under control because we saw him do well in the Mastiff trainer. His ears are ringing. He's snapping his fingers in the ear. And there is like literally a cloud of smoke and debris on top of their heads. Yeah. And the show ends. Everybody's a little and, stunned. Yeah. Right. And, and scared because they realize like, you know, they, they could have very easily been them on top of that one. Yeah. Um, in real life, uh, Mercury Atlas One uh, exploded at thirty thousand feet, but there was a lot of debate about whether they should have launched that day because the weather was extremely bad. Um, so actually, when the real Mercury Atlas One blew up, they couldn't see it. It was it was lost above the cloud level, so they didn't know what happened until uh, it was announced that the rocket had exploded. I mean, they'd heard it, but they didn't actually see it. Right. Um, and uh, in real life, the, the booster and the capsule were recovered from the ocean. Like, they went out and they found them, which is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and the rocket, actually, in real life, Mercury Atlas 1 failed at what they call Max-Q, which is sort of maximal dynamic pressure. Like, there's this, there's this interesting moment, like, as the rocket accelerates, the pressure on it gets higher, and the, uh, the air pressure on it gets harsher, and there's a sort of maximal moment where the acceleration, the air pressure are at their peak. And then above that, the air density falls off and it gets smoother. You can actually, if you listen to space shuttle launches, they always talk about when they're going through max Q. That's why, for example, they throttle down and then they throttle up during space shuttle launches. Hence, hence uh, the famous phrase, challenger, go at throttle up. They had just passed through max Q. Right. But, the, in, in, but in Mercury Atlas 1, the rocket failed at the, at the point of maximum sort of dynamic stress on it. So, you know, you could see they were still learning about that at the time. Um, 
a very good episode for this show. Uh, I, 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 am, I am reassured after the snooze fest that episode one was. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good one. A lot happens. There's character development. You know, it, it's it's well done. Yeah, it's really well done. Um, all right, well, uh, we'll put some show notes up and uh, we will be back for episode four. <laughs>